Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 121, Crashing. I'll be the first to admit that I've been breezing through this mini-series on the United States when compared to my most recent coverage of individual nations. Compared to them, I've been bouncing around scattered topics and not really giving the usual in-depth through-line of history for the 1920s. The reason for this is because the U.S. just didn't have as much skin in the global order game once they bailed on it at the start of the decade. Whereas the other great powers of the world were hopelessly bumping into each other, America was distant. They could dip in and out as they saw fit. When trying to explain why a stable international order failed to materialize in the 20s, they were a guest star on the show, not an every-episode character. But as I described in detail last episode, the American economy was enormous, and its gravity couldn't be avoided. American wealth quietly underwrote the stability of the second half of the 20s, even more so than the Western European statesmen at Locarno. American finance kept Germany and other smaller nations in Europe, like Hungary for instance, afloat. And that money flowed elsewhere to the continent to further enrich other states. And that's where America's self-imposed supporting role would come to an end, and would evolve into what was very much a driver of the action. Because when American finance retreated, and by retreat I mean shatter and rout completely, that near half-decade of recovery and cooperation went bye-bye. In its place would be an era of poverty, fear, and, yes, depression. I'm talking about the 1929 Wall Street crash, the first stage of a sequence of awful events that would usher in the Great Depression, which itself was so great that depression itself almost became a forbidden term in the economic lexicon. There are recessions of all kinds. There can never be, again, another depression. It's simply forbidden to be repeated. Which, to be fair, this great one was pretty bad. It swept aside the status quo like an angry child knocking over a board game. It is important to note, though, that while I know that its enormity might make all the events I've described up to this point seem small and almost irrelevant, keep in mind this didn't hit all at once. The Depression initiated a years-long teardown of what had come before. Agreements were reneged upon, institutions abandoned, old norms violated. Always keep in mind that for the people living in those days, it wasn't a matter of reading events in a book or listening to a podcast. It was a life lived, with years spent watching all that had been worked towards subsumed by the much scarier events of the 30s. But as I mentioned a moment ago, today's episode will just be that initiating event, the Great Crash. So, in the years-long saga that was the Depression, today is just going to be round one. But I figured it a good place to wrap up the narrative for the season, one last hubristic disaster to close out the United States' contributions of the 1920s. The economic boom energizing the United States had been going on since the first half of the decade, fueled by easy access to credit, creating a spike in the demand for consumer goods. And a little problem with boom times is that they create bubbles. The reason for this is understandable. Enterprises do well, they return a lot of money, people want in and they throw their own money on the table in droves to get a piece of the action. And people at every point in history were well aware that to maximize a fortune, it's best to get in early, so people's interest turns into a frenzy very quickly, which is what happened in the mid-20s. Every sector of the economy was humming and people were falling over themselves to get in. One of the most notable examples of speculation was in real estate. 
As I described last week, Americans were able to go longer distances thanks to automobiles, so they were no longer confined to cities. And thanks to cheap credit, they could purchase homes outside the city as well. This opened up a lot of real estate possibilities in a lot of areas, but the most nationally known of them was the Florida market. You're probably well aware of the hellscape that is the Florida real estate market today. What you might not be aware of was that for much of the state's history, it was a barely inhabitable backwater. And that's not me make, trying to make a topical joke. I'm, I'm meaning that in the most literal sense. Its climate was deadly in an age before air conditioning, and it simply wasn't practical to channel the swamps that dominated the, the geography. As a proportion of the nation, the population was tiny compared to the modern day. But it had those beaches. Oh yes, it did. Previously, those beaches weren't worthwhile. They were hard to get to, and to properly enjoy them meant you had to have leisure time. That was rare up until around the 20s. Then infrastructure improved, people became more mobile, and more importantly, more prosperous. Not to say that to the average person, Florida was the automatic destination, but that's where the speculators and the admin came in. The speculators swooped up cheap land and got to work conjuring a vision of beautiful vacation homes in a tropical climate. This was especially targeted at buyers from the North, the denizens of Chicago, New York, Boston, Detroit. They suffered their winters, but the allure of Florida was that they'd never have to freeze again, and people bought into the idea. 1925 was a big year for Florida, as people arrived in droves, buying into the new dream. Property values roughly doubled in a 40-mile radius around Miami, and demand begat demand. The speculators, having made a mint selling their first wave of properties, reinvested in more. But demand slacked off in 1926, no doubt because many prospective buyers had already made their purchase and the surging cost of land cut out less well-off customers. Still, people snapped up properties with the intent to flip as quickly as possible. Demand had slacked but could still be made good with a higher resale value. Then two hurricanes hit in the autumn of 1926. It was the usual disaster, but the damage it caused was considered more of a delay in the expanding real estate market, not a long-term stop. Well, that assumption was wrong, and it turned out to be a long-term stop. Interest dried up, and many a speculator was left holding a bag of properties they couldn't make mortgage payments on, and nor could they find a buyer. It was a public meltdown that made the news across the country. Those who had made their fortunes in 1925 and early 26 and had not cashed out were ruined. But instead of serving as a wake-up call, it just made people turn their attentions to other easy sources of money. And that easy money appeared to be in the stock market, which was especially true for industrial stocks, as manufacturers were the ones driving the vast expansion of the economy. Stocks were great. Put a little money down on behalf of a company and watch its value just go up. Starting in 1924, the markets began their advance, with the major industrial stocks almost doubling in value by the start of 1926. I'm not going to bore you to tears with thrilling tales of number going up, number going down, and the overall value of the stock market would seem pitifully small to the modern listener on account of a lack of modern inflation. So the numbers themselves aren't hugely relevant. Just pay attention to where they're going and how quickly they're doing it. But despite the quick expansion, things seemed normal. After all, the stock prices were merely reflecting the increased activity these businesses were enjoying in the real economy. Then, in 1927, the Europeans turned up in New York, asking the Federal Reserve for a favor. 
The big reoccurring theme among much of the world in the early 1920s was inflation and the fight to head it off. The British sought to keep their pound, the strongest currency unit for unit, the German mark enjoyed its time in the abyss in the mid-decade, while Italy's lira was always fairly weak, and Mussolini made its state policy to make it a strong, dependable measure of value. I'm leaving other guys out, but you get the picture. Post-World War I, financial stability was desired, and that meant a return to the gold standard. You may or may not remember that the UK, under the auspices of the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, Winston Churchill, led the charge to combat inflation by returning to the standard. I say return because the standard was the rule pre-World War I, but the realities of wartime spending meant nations had to suspend the system. The return was a quest not just for fiscal stability, but restoring pre-war conditions. And most of all, the remaining notable economies of the world soon followed the UK's lead. This did do the trick vis-a-vis -vis inflation. Tying the supply of money to having gold on hand certainly meant that the money was considered more valuable, but to accomplish this, interest rates had to rise and the money supply reduced. After all, the crux of the system was the idea that your paper currency could be converted to gold at will, meaning there was a hard cap to the money supply. This made borrowing more expensive, meaning basic investments needed to keep the global economy humming along were made that much harder to maintain. Many nations found themselves with a hand tied behind their backs economically for the sake of being able to say that their currency was a strong one. Highly valued currencies hurt exports, you see, because foreign buyers would have to purchase goods in an expensive currency compared to their own, which, for nations that had suffered severe inflation, might have been a fair trade-off in exchange for a little certainty. But the British insisting that every pound equal $4.86 come hell or high water was taking things a little too far. And Churchill readily admitted that he wasn't an economics guy. The strong pound was every bit a political objective in the UK as it was in other nations. It could be said that it was just as much about projecting confidence as it was an actual economic policy. Now, the ratio did set up a slump in the UK economy that afflicted the nation going right into the Great Depression and effectively induced the Great Strike of 1926, which, hey, just a little reference to tie us back to the early season. And while going back onto the gold standard wasn't quite so damaging elsewhere, the Europeans couldn't come up with sufficient liquidity to keep going in their self-created kingdom of expensive domestic borrowing. The answer was in New York. That favor I mentioned earlier was asking the Federal Reserve to lower their interest rates so that money could be borrowed through the U.S. Now, this wasn't quite a light switch moment where American economic hegemony sprang into existence, but oh boy, did it make the world economy dependent on American credit. Because long story short, the United States said yes to being a supply of cheap money and lowered their interest rates. America was on the gold standard too, but veritable boatloads of gold had made their way to American banks, so the money-to-gold ratio was fine. For the American economy, this reduction in interest rates from 4.5% to 3 gave the green light to a new round of speculation. Now, if you've paid attention to interest rates in a modern America in the past 15 years, you'll know that those rates don't seem that low, but keep in mind that was considered more par for the course in those days, and the environment was acclimated to rates being just so. Reducing rates by a third in one go made borrowing way, way more attractive. The classic result that gets a lot of play in the Depression narrative was that people then started taking out loans in order to buy stock, 
which then inflated values that then induced more rounds borrowing until the shell game collapsed on itself. Which, true, that did happen, but the additional liquidity also went to expanding businesses and creating new ones as well, further increasing production, making more enterprises to speculate on as the next great opportunity, and requiring ever greater patterns of consumption to sustain the whole thing. 1928 was the year where expectations became untethered from reality. Stock market gains became front-page news, and the business leaders were regarded as sages. Their off-the-cuff quotes to reporters, taken as gospel by those unable to determine for themselves which way the winds were really blowing. All through that year, the market swung to and fro, mostly upwards. But notably during the summer, it went downward so quickly that most reporters agreed that the boom had passed which it hadn't, but indicated an underlying instability as the value of stocks moved in both directions at a rapid clip. Trading was moving faster and in larger volumes than it had ever been, leading to spur-of-the-moment decisions and panic moves. Even over a year before the crash, the market had no chill, even by its own standards. This is also where the problem of loans backed by purchased stocks became a cause of concern. Basically, the way these worked is that you approach a bank, say that you wanted a loan to buy stocks or other securities, and instead of putting up something you already have as collateral, you'll put up the stock you're buying to secure the loan in case you default. You would also throw in a little of your own cash as well to provide a cushion in case the stock value went too low, but really most of the collateral was the stock itself. The idea was that while you were on the hook for however much the loan was, the value of the stock purchased would only increase, more than offsetting the expense of the debt. You probably see the flaw in this arrangement, because if the stock value falls too far too fast, the debtor would first be in trouble because they'd have to come up with on-hand cash to support the loan. And if they can't do that in default, the bank lending the money in the first place could only claim worthless stock. If you're wondering why people don't really do this anymore, it's because there are heavy regulations discouraging the practice. It's still something that's doable, but it's tightly monitored, and a prospective debtor has to be very determined to obtain a loan for the purpose. Back then, though, well, it was the wild Wall Street. And yes, those regulations were put in place on account of this whole thing blowing up as bad as it did. Early in the 20s, these types of loans amounted to, at most, a billion and a half dollars. By the end of 1928, there were six billion in these types of loans by themselves on the books, which adjusted for inflation would be over a hundred billion today, which still doesn't sound like that much overall, but was a big proportion of all loans held by the big banks. And it was especially concerning because they were based on wildly inflated stock values. There was an additional wrinkle that drove speculation as well. Because of the demand for such loans, the interest rates on them steadily increased throughout 1928. At the start of the year, banks offered these loans with around a 5% interest rate. By the end of the year, this had grown to 12%. Partly because of demand, partly because stocks were clearly overinflated and ergo risky collateral, and partly because the banks themselves were overextended and were trying to pump on the brakes. That's an absurdly high number and drifts uncomfortably close to payday loan rates. But people were willing to pay because with stock values increasing like they were, they could just cash out a little of the stock to pay on interest rates if worst came to worst. After all, everybody's numbers were going up. This attracted attention, and suddenly foreign banks wanted in on the American market. They wanted to loan money to Wall Street speculators. 
Which, hey, with rates that high, you can't blame them for not wanting to sit on the sidelines. By 1929, banks across the world were getting into the game lending based on securities. And by 1929, it was obvious to people in the halls of power that there was a massive bubble on their hands. At least to most people. President Coolidge, on his way out, had no grasp of the situation and probably wouldn't have cared if he did. Hoover, on his way into the presidency, showed concern about the unchecked and reckless expansion, but didn't quite have the answer of what to do. The members of the Federal Reserve saw the danger, but probably because many of its members were collecting their share of the spoils, didn't take any meaningful moves to slow the market down. As it turned out, it was actually the British who blinked first in February 1929. London looked on with alarm as its money was flowing out to America to provide credit there. So they raised interest rates again, limiting the money supply of British banks. The effects were minor, the British economy was made slightly weaker again, and that country's banks became less of a presence, little more. To those paying attention, though, it raised the possibility that the money supply with which to buy stock might not be infinite. And if the game of borrow, buy, profit were to be broken, well, you better be the first at the exit. At the end of March, the Federal Reserve Board assembled in Washington. Not anything unusual, aside from the fact that the contents of their meetings were not made public and also stretched into the weekends. The only detail that was known was that they were talking about the markets. The daily private meetings caused a stir in the media, and starting on March 25th, the market started a large sell-off, again breaking volume records. This continued for days, and the response of banks was startling. Interest rates for loans collateralized by purchased securities went from 12 to 14% on the 25th, and the next day they increased to a full 20%. The message was clear. Banks would not suicidally lend to a falling market. That is, except for one man and his bank. Charles Mitchell of the National City Bank stepped in and declared he'd keep lending out money to interested debtors. The boom could have ended there and then at the end of March. The panic was very real, and speculators were seeing the gates of hell open in front of them as their value was wiped out. But Mitchell, less due to the actual amount of money he made available, steadied the market based on vibes alone. He was willing to step into the financial breach because he didn't believe the expansion to be over. He also had a great deal to personally lose if it was over, but that wouldn't be revealed until after the crash. The panicked sellers rallied themselves and the other banks began lending again. The whole episode lasted just a few days. It did lead to a lot of finger-pointing, as Mitchell had obviously and brazenly manipulated the market. There was no reason that the sell-off shouldn't have continued, and if his bank had been the only one lending in such an environment, he would have been ruined. But nothing came of it, which turned out to be the entire problem. Because when the Federal Reserve concluded their meetings, there were no conclusions drawn as to, you know, if any action should be taken. Mitchell had demonstrated that the markets would manage themselves, and the federal authorities opted to sit back and enjoy the ride. And what a ride it had turned into. The summer of 1929 saw the market almost exclusively go up. Day in, day out, gains were made, and fortunes grew. Core industrial firms saw their stock values go up by roughly 25% in a season, and individual giants like General Electric and U.S. Steel went up by a third or even half of their starting values in May. And people were still falling over themselves to get in. Now, keep in mind that the overall number of Americans doing this investing 
wasn't that high a proportion of the population. Like I've stressed in the past, much of the country was stuck in poverty, and much of the rest was struggling to keep up with household expenses, much less establishing a stock portfolio. But those who had a little money to throw around were doing so in earnest. And they were taking out loans in which to fuel their continued purchases, even as interest rates on those loans went up, and the cost of those stocks they were purchasing were going up as well. At the start of the year, experts had predicted a slowdown, even a retreat from the highs. But the gains made over the summer were so intoxicating that by the end of the season, those voices had largely thrown in the towel and accepted that the good times were going to continue for a while into the future. If there was a bubble, it should have popped long before fall 1929. The fundamentals must be strong if the market was moving inexorably forward. They, of course, weren't strong, and by 1929, a new factor in the markets was helping mask the dangers ahead. Investment trusts were companies where brokers and other market specialists would take money from a client and then manage its investment. They would buy and sell securities with an eye towards maximizing what their clients provided. In exchange, the company personnel took a cut, usually tied to how much they were able to grow the client's portfolio. If this sounds like a hedge fund to you, they function much the same way. And on the surface, they seemed perfectly beneficial from the perspective of an enthusiast for capital. Many prospective investors in the U.S. were new to the game and didn't have the inside track of what was going on in the market and or didn't have the time to gain that understanding. Enlisting professionals seemed like a win-win. And this wasn't a new idea to the 20s. These types of companies were well-established, especially in Britain. It's just that in America, they were few in number by the time the 20s expansion got underway. And that last bit is where the problem was. At the start of 1927, there were 160 in operation. At the start of 1928, there were 300. And by the start of 1929, they numbered nearly 500, with more being added almost every business day. In 1927, they held approximately $400 million in securities on behalf of their clients. By the start of 1929, it was $3 billion, and by autumn, it was $8 billion. Again, these might be small numbers from a modern perspective, but just note the amount being played with was multiplied 20 times when compared to just two and a half years prior. And this dramatic increase, not just in businesses, but the scale of the business they were doing, created a big problem that the market increases hid until it was too late. There simply were not enough experienced people who worked in the stock market to actually man all these companies. Most of them established in the good times were run by relative neophytes who only wished to ride those good times as far as they could. And hey, if the market only went up, you didn't have to know what you were doing. The public certainly weren't asking too many questions. They were so desperate to get their money into the market, they were willing to park their savings with whomever they could. And it must be stressed, with the market only rising, nobody was stopping to think about what might go wrong. Of course, there were some investment trusts whose personnel were experienced and qualified and did their jobs exactly as advertised and acted as responsibly as people assumed that they would. Which kind of made things worse, because most people weren't discerning enough to tell the good ones from the bad, given that everybody was making money hand over fist. What I'm getting at was that the market was increasingly driven by men who didn't have a good understanding of it, and had no backup plan or even an inkling that everything was going to fall apart around them. It was almost all on autopilot, dependent of course on money continuously being pumped into the system. 
By the end of summer 1929, it was conventional wisdom again that the good times could be expected to last. Naysayers were regarded with suspicion, almost as if they had a financial interest in the market going down. And it wasn't just the New York stock markets that were lively either. Major cities across the country, like Chicago and San Francisco, all saw their own local markets pop off. The stock ticker, that clunky terminal that dispensed a constant stream of ticker tape imprinted with the latest market shifts, became a symbol of the moment. If not quite ubiquitous to the general population, it was at least a known conveyor of the miraculous news coming from the markets. And those markets became a point of pride, a visible manifestation of American prosperity and might. Europe may have had their empires, but the United States had Wall Street. That euphoric fever, though, broke rapidly with the end of the summer. The stock market is often the last to feel the effects of an economy in recession. And while stocks were going up in the middle of the year, the real economy was in retreat. June had been the peak of manufacturing in the United States, and then virtually every sector was in decline after that point. From cars to appliances to houses, demand was slackening everywhere. It appeared as though American industry had either finally sold the public everything they could buy, or, more realistically, the savings and credit of the public had been exhausted. The entire basis of the stock expansion had vanished while the markets continued to rise. Gravity would not take too long to reassert itself, though. By the start of September, banks were stretched to the breaking point and were themselves borrowing from the Federal Reserve in order to fund the speculative loans they were doling out. This fragile situation was picked up upon, and the old tension from back in March manifested itself. Starting on September 5th, there began sell-offs that aroused the old fears of a crash. And while the market rallied so that a crash did not occur then and there, sell-offs continued, with the trajectory of the stock market being generally down. The media, so bullish for the entire summer, began hinting again that the boom was over. Now, the decline in production and consumption wasn't exactly the end of the world. It was significant enough to signal a recession to those willing to pay attention, but it didn't have to be a disaster. The thing was that the entire banking system had joined itself to the markets through all the speculative loans. Everyone had overextended themselves to the point where even a slight decrease would doom everybody. Investors simply had too much debt and too much of their wealth was based on the value of stocks being constantly high. The banks had shelled out too much of their own money, and the loans were almost entirely secured by stocks that had to maintain at least their initial value. Even a slight dip would create a chain reaction of panic, which is exactly what happened. All through September and most of October, the market continued its slide. Not quite enough to panic, but confidence that the upswings would return largely faded. What remained was an inclination to snap up some discounted stocks from those making their exits with the expectation that they'd increase enough to make the purchase worthwhile before being dumped again. So, not exactly an environment of confident buyers. And by Friday, October 18th, even these modest expectations were dispelled. The end of the day saw heavy sell-offs, and by the time markets reopened on Monday the 21st, the situation only got worse. The sheer volume of trading jammed the stock tickers, delaying news from getting out by up to an hour. Those waiting all across the country for news couldn't help but note not only the sharp downward trend, but also the delay in word being relayed to them. At the rate things were going, God only knew what was happening in the span of that hour's delay. 
information coming in was already obsolete by the time the recipient got it. While the end of trading on Monday saw the market stabilize and make back much of its losses, followed by gains on Tuesday, the end of day Wednesday saw the start of the crash with the biggest sell-offs yet. But those occurred just in the last hour of the day, so the real panic had to wait for Black Thursday morning, October 24th. People wanted out, but nobody was buying. People oftentimes treat stock like money. If it says a certain dollar amount, then it should be worth that dollar amount. But that assumes there's somebody out there willing to buy, and in this case, there wasn't. And so stock prices had to be slashed, which panicked others into selling, which created a stampede of volume that again jammed the stock tickers. This time, the nerve of people located physically outside of Wall Street broke. There was a rush to sell across the nation, and the markets turned into a madhouse by lunchtime Thursday. To their credit, the leaders of New York's biggest banks swooped in by 12.30 to stop the panic. Back in 1907, the legendary financier, J.P. Morgan, had led a similar charge to stave off a panic. Now, his company and its counterparts like Chase Bank, and once again Charles Mitchell's National City, moved to save the market. Their tactics were simple buy as much stock as was needed to restore confidence in the system. The idea was that they would purchase in such amounts that prices would at least stabilize. It wasn't intended to make money, per se, although that'd obviously be great. It was intended to stop the system from collapsing. And for the moment, it worked. Sell orders still came through from around the country for the rest of the day, and by the time markets closed, many speculators had been savaged. But to some, it was all an opportunity. Stocks were a lot cheaper after Thursday and presented a buying opportunity. Unfortunately, the speculative nature of the entire market would sabotage efforts to save it. The speculators that had seen declines decided to cut and run Monday, October 28th. Banks were demanding they put up cash to cover the shortfalls in the value of their stock collateral. The speculators didn't have the cash, so the stock had to go. Both that Monday and Tuesday earned the moniker black, much as the preceding Thursday had as well. In truth, the former two days were far worse in their effects. A quarter of the market's value was wiped out in just those two days alone, and this time the commanders of finance could only watch, as their tactic of bulk purchasing stock no longer had an effect. The nightmare was made worse as those who worked in the markets basically camped out in downtown New York for the duration of the crisis isolated from their families, and occupied solely with what they could do to save their skins. And for a time, it appeared as if things would stabilize. The market rallied a handful of times, interest rates were slashed, and speculative loans were cashed out. But that last one was a problem that just wasn't going away. There were simply too many loans based on securities that had lost too much value, and creditors started moving in on their clients to pay up. As you already know, they couldn't the numerous investment trusts suddenly found themselves holding vast stores of worthless assets. And without the money pouring in from investors with easy access to credit, the markets tumbled downwards throughout November, setting off further rounds of creditors turning on their clients. There were some notable instances of suicide as debtors opted to check out of life entirely, although the mass die-offs reported in European newspapers were exaggerated. One was found in the Hudson, one choked himself with gas, one set himself alight. Some blew their brains out. Only a handful did the now classic window jump. A huge amount of wealth was wiped out in a stroke. As Groucho Marx put it during one of his routines, I lost $400,000. I would have lost more, but that was all the money I had. 
And while men like Andrew Mellon could look on with a certain sense of satisfaction that the gauche speculators were firmly shown the exit so that the professional business class could handle things, the truth was that their disappearance left gaping holes in the balance sheets of the banks. And when I pick up next season with the story of the Depression, that will be what separates what comes after this crash from a simple recession. The complete meltdown of the financial sector first hit in the U.S., and then around the world, which would pull the rug from the entire system of free enterprise so championed by the victorious Western powers. And it provides a depressing capstone to America's story in the 20s, one of wasted potential and a steadfast refusal of responsibility. The public, not just the government, turned inward, and events became an expression of that national feeling. Bearing great responsibility around the world for the first time, the nation panicked. Violence against anything that didn't subscribe to a mythical and really delusional idea of nation preluded the decade, and once the feeling of frenzy passed, the collective mental state was one that refused to engage with uncomfortable topics. America's leaders reflected this. Harding was a well-meaning incompetent, Coolidge was incorruptible but totally inert, and Hoover a personally capable man bound by a conservatism that limited his natural abilities. It's an odd thought in the modern age that America could do too little. Most, I think, would say that America today does too much. The problem with both approaches, though, stemmed from the interests of the business class having too much sway over the nation's direction. The Great Depression, just begun at the end of 1929, would, for a brief window, lay those interests low, to the point where the greater public, destitute and demoralized as it was, could learn from some of its errors and regain at least partial control of its destiny, during the era of FDR. And on that note, my coverage of the United States ends for now. For next week, I'll be wrapping up the season and shall try to tie all these disparate topics together that I've covered over 120-odd episodes. After that, I'll be on hiatus so that I can take a little break. But don't worry, the first part of next season is already written, so I'll be back. Join me next week for my little victory lap, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.